Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. Waking our way through the book of Acts, talking about the continuing acts of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we have this idea that Lord Jesus Christ continues to work and act in this church and in our church today because of what the author of the book of Acts said at the very beginning when he wrote to this man named Theophilus and He said, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach in the first book. And now here is the second book. And so I think what Luke is saying to us is Jesus is continuing to work. He's continuing to act. He is alive. He's working in your midst. And that's what we see Jesus Christ do through the sending of the Spirit. And as the Spirit empowers the apostles and the other believers as they go out and they bear witness. First to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and then eventually to the world. That's why we're here. (laughs) Because that witness that started there in Jerusalem has spread out by God's grace, and it's come to us. And now, Jesus Christ (laughs) continues to work in our midst, among us. That's our prayer. So would you stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning out of reverence for God's Word. I'm going to read the first 26 verses and then after I read the 26th verse, I will say, this is the Word of the Lord and together we will say, thanks be to God because we truly are thankful for God's Word, right? Let's read together. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, We greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. We entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own feet and hands, and and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? 
For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or to walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent letter, a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. All-wise Father, let us be doers of the word and not hearers only, that we might be blessed in our doing. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. How do you respond to this truth? God has a plan for you. Are you glad? Are you thankful for that? Are you apprehensive maybe? Are you nervous? God has a plan for you. Write that on a plaque and stick that in your house. How about though if I said this? God has a plan for you and it's different than your plan. Worried? Fretful? Questioning? How about this truth? God has a plan for you, and it means that your life will be more difficult. Don't find that at Hobby Lobby, if you're looking for that sign. Maybe I can handle the first two. Okay, God has a plan for me. Yes. God has a plan for me, and it's different than my plan. Okay, I can, I can come around to that. Something more difficult, some, some kind of hardship, some kind of trial, some kind of affliction. That's ludicrous. Life is difficult enough without God's plan for my life being difficult. How would you respond to such a plan? Resist? Deny? Ignore? <laughs> disobey? I think oftentimes we look at our life, we think about, okay, Lord, if there's going to be difficulties in my life, sometimes we think, I'm the only one. No one else has ever had to deal with what I'm dealing with. No one else has ever had to go through what, what I'm going through. Nobody knows the troubles I feel. I do not think we need to look any further than to the life of Jesus Christ to know that that is not true. God had a perfect plan for his son. 
It was a plan planned before the foundation of the world. It was a plan that was bathed in difficulty. The plan was not hidden from Jesus. He knew it. He knew it, and he was there in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was sweating drops of blood. He's crying out to his Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done, Father. He knew what God the Father's plan was for his life. And he met that difficulty head on. In fact, three different times before he gets to the garden, before he gets to Mount Calvary, he tells his disciples precisely what will happen to him. He doesn't try to escape. He doesn't try to wiggle his way out of it. No, he obeys. And what we read in Luke chapter 9 is fascinating. It says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus set his face to go to that place that was most difficult for him to go. It was like his, his face was set like flint going to that place. The place where people were looking to arrest him, to beat him, to kill him. How would you advise Jesus? Jesus, get out of there. Jesus, Go the other direction. Jesus, run away. Jesus, hide. Jesus, find a safe place. But Jesus knew the plan of redemption set in motion by his heavenly Father. And yet he even met resistance by those closest to him. They were telling him, Jesus, don't go there. Listen to Mark 8, 31 through 33. And he, that's Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus would not be tempted by Peter or by his satanic way of thinking because Jesus knew what really mattered. Peter was saying nothing different than what the serpent was hissing to Jesus, what Satan was doing when he was hissing to Jesus when he was out in the wilderness. Jesus, there's a different way than the cross. There's a different way that you can go. You don't have to die. But Jesus says, no, that is the only way. This is what really matters Jesus was living for what really mattered, and he would die for what really mattered, the salvation and the redemption of souls. His life was not lived in vain. His death was not dying in vain. We cannot and must not think that such a lesson and such a pattern of life is lost on the Apostle Paul here in the book of Acts. In fact, I believe one of the things that Luke, the author of Acts, is doing right here is showing us how Paul's life is patterned after the life of Christ. Let's understand, Paul does not accomplish what Jesus Christ accomplished. He cannot accomplish what Jesus Christ accomplished. Only Jesus can save. Only Jesus can offer his life as the perfect sacrifice in the place of sinners so forgive them and bring them to eternal life. But Paul's life, patterned after Christ, no less shows that he knew what really mattered and he lived for what really mattered. Oftentimes, we would like to think that we are living for what really matters. In fact, I believe this is often what the whole of mankind is trying to do. We're trying to find out what really matters. And when we think we find it, we give ourselves to it. We dedicate ourselves to it. You ever notice it's easy to spot in the lives of others when they are inconsistent in their living? <laughs> it's much harder for us to see our own inconsistencies in the way we live 
as we seek to live for what really matters. If you don't know what really matters in life, you do your best to fake it. We find this in different realms all around us in our world. People trying to find out what, what is it? What is it that, what is the one thing that really matters? What is the one thing that I can give myself to? People sometimes say education. That's what really matters. It is ultimate. And so they give themselves solely to education. You find it in entertainment. People say pleasure is what really matters, and so they give themselves to that. You find it in politics. People say politics is what really matters, and, they, and that's really going to accomplish things in this world, and so they give themselves to that. You find it by people say, saying I like comfort. I'm all about making my life more comfortable. Getting to that place or that point where I have more comfort in my life to ease the pain. You find it in money. People say that that's all that really matters and so they give themselves to it. I believe this is one of the great dilemmas that goes on in the world. It's not necessarily a new dilemma. The same dilemma, nevertheless, when people get to the point when they thought they knew what really mattered, but in the end it turns out it, it doesn't matter that much at all. They've given themselves to something that in the end doesn't matter. They've gotten to the end only to find the thing that they lived for was worthless. They wasted their life. We as the church even have to fight against this way of thinking. We're susceptible to elevating the unimportant over what is most important and making what is non-essential essential in our Christian lives and in the church. And that's what we see Paul wrestling with here in, in these verses. We find Paul living his life for what really matters, knowing what really matters and, and going after it. And what happens when you know what really matters, when you know what's ultimate in your life, when you know what you're living for, there's a balance between being rigid and being flexible. And that's what we see with Paul here. He knows that there are times in life when you have to be rigid, when you say, no, this is what I have to do. There's other times in life where you have to be flexible. You have to bend. You have to be pliable. And you have to be able to hold these two things in balance, knowing when to be rigid and knowing when to be flexible. So how should Paul's pattern of life, which mimicked the Savior's pattern of life, influence our pattern of life? Two principles this morning to direct how we live. You can follow along there in your bulletin if that is helpful, but number one, we must discipline ourselves because we love the gospel. We must discipline ourselves because we love the gospel. Paul has been making his way from the churches in modern-day Greece all the way around the Aegean Sea, traveling much by boat, down the western coast of modern-day Turkey, making his way to his final destination, which is Jerusalem. So we jump in here at this point in chapter 21 with him going around the Aegean Sea, traveling down this coast of modern-day Turkey, He's making his way to Jerusalem. He's been traveling with many companions. He's sent by the churches of these regions, carrying an offering. He's collected money. For the church in Jerusalem. And so he's going there to deliver this gift to them. The pace of his trip has been increasing as he desires to get to Jerusalem by the time of Jewish festival Pentecost. And our text this morning shows the final leg of this trip when he finally arrives at Jerusalem. All along the way, he continues to have short stays with fellow Christians. In our text, we see that they stay first in the city of Tyre coastal town just north of Israel. He seeks out disciples there. He seeks out fellow Christians. He stays with them for seven days, it says. 
I think there is something that can be said here about Paul's desire for Christian fellowship. He wanted to know his fellow brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. It was important for him that he knows them and that they know him. Spent these times caring for each other, loving one another, encouraging one another. But notice what happens here at Tyre. When he was staying with them, what it says in verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Wait, what's going on? This is precisely where Paul was headed. This was the point of his whole journey. Everything that Paul was doing, everything that Paul is thinking, everything that Paul is planning revolves around going to and arriving at Jerusalem. There appears to be a contradiction in the, tech, in the text right here because if you look earlier in chapter 20, verse 22, Paul says, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. Paul says in this verse he is constrained or compelled or in a sense controlled by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. How do we make sense of this now when we read the believers entire through the Spirit were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem? Had the Holy Spirit changed his mind? Was Paul disobeying the Holy Spirit? What are we to make of this apparent contradiction? Is Paul supposed to go to Jerusalem or not? From this encounter entire with these Christians, we don't know what Paul's response is. We don't know precisely what he says to the believers. But I think his actions tell us the answer. What does he do? Keeps on going, doesn't he? Keeps on his journey. He doesn't stop. He continues making his way toward Jerusalem. We will answer this apparent problem in a moment. But we have to keep, keep reading, I think, to help us understand what's going on. And look at how there's this desire to worship together even before they leave. It's, these whole families are coming out with Paul and his companions. They are, they're there on the beach. They're kneeling down. They're having a prayer meeting right there on the beach. Praying for Paul. Praying for his journey. Praying for the church. Praying for the gospel to go forth. Praying for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to be extolled and exalted and lifted up. Paul presses on. They board the ship. The believers return to their home. And the voyage continues to this city called Ptolemy, just south of Tyre. Again, they stay with the believers. Again, they need Christian friendship. Maybe just a pause here for a moment. God has instilled something in mankind. We need friends. We need people in our lives. What was the one bad thing after God created everything? What was the one bad thing? It was not good that man was alone. So he created a helpmate for Adam. Are you lonely? Are you lonely? Where do you find friends? around you, my friends. <laughs> Look around you. People in this world are lonely. <laughs> they know they're alone. And in fact, we carry around devices that don't help us. They make us, make us detach more from other people. <laughs> what do people need? They need the gospel of Jesus Christ because that brings them into a company, a community of friends. People who are loving Jesus Christ together and loving one another. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's going to Tyre. He finds the believers. He fellowships with them. He's going to Ptolemy. He finds the believers and fellowships with them there. Every stop, that's what he's doing. Finally, he gets to this town of Caesarea. City, coastal city, the northern side of Israel. He's reacquainted with one of one of the most prominent persons in the book of Acts, a man named Philip. Philip, one of the seven, that is one of the first seven deacons chosen to serve, if you go back to Acts chapter 6. 
He is the one who proclaims Christ in the region of Samaria. Many are saved in that region. He's the one who's brought by the Holy Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He sees the Ethiopian eunuch reading Isaiah 53. He asks him if he understands what he is reading. And remember what the Ethiopian eunuch says? How can I understand unless someone tells me? And so, and so Philip lays out the gospel for him and he's saved and he's baptized. For that, Philip has this title. Do you see it there? Title, evangelist. That is, he had given himself to the spreading of the gospel, of preaching Jesus Christ, that his nickname became bearer of good news. Oh, would that be all of our nicknames? (laughs) We're told that he has four unmarried daughters who prophesied, which reminds us of Peter's sermon all the way back in Acts chapter 2, where Peter quotes the book of Joel and says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Here, this prophecy continues, fulfilled by the daughters of Philip, reminding us that this is the new covenant era that's come upon us. The days of prophet Joel had predicted in the Old Testament are now here. The Holy Spirit is poured out on all those who believe. All those who believe are now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. The sign of the new covenant that Christ has come. And it is while Paul and his companions are there that this other prophet named Agabus comes from the region of Judea. He finds Paul at Philip's house. And he does something that's weird, doesn't he? Agabus does something physical to Paul to convey a message from the Holy Spirit. This is actually not that unusual as we see other prophets take physical actions to show what will happen. Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament, had to walk about naked and barefoot for three years warning Israel of the judgment to come. Ezekiel had to lie down on his left side for 390 days to represent the years of punishment Israel was to receive, and then he had to switch sides, go on the other side, his right side, for 40 days to represent the years of punishment Judah would receive. So this type of prophetic symbolism is not entirely out of place in the Bible. So Agabus comes, takes off Paul's belt. You imagine being in that house when that's happening. Here comes this prophet. He walks in. He takes off Paul's belt. He binds his hands and feet with it and declares what the Holy Spirit says. So here is this divine communication from the Holy Spirit coming through the prophet Agabus. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Can you imagine Paul's companions and those believers at Philip's house who see this take place? Here's Paul, hogtied with his own belt, this vivid picture right before their eyes, someone who is so important to the spreading of the gospel among the Gentiles, someone who had been used greatly by the Lord, someone who, had, who was led by the Spirit, someone who they deeply loved and cared for. We can understand what happens next, can't we? They urged Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Paul, don't go. You don't have to subject yourself to that. You can't avoid this. You can stop right now. We don't want you to be bound. We don't want you to be imprisoned. You are too valuable to the cause of Jesus Christ to do this. Paul, don't go. And I think it's right here that we... See, these, ver- these verses merge with verse 4 that we talked about earlier to help us understand that apparent contradiction. Remember what verse 4 said, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. I think we have to understand a difference in prophecy when it comes to prediction versus prohibition. Prediction versus prohibition. How is this different? 
what we've seen in these prophecies given to us is that the Holy Spirit merely predicts what will happen to Paul. Paul, you will face imprisonment. Paul, you will face affliction. Paul, you will face difficulties. That is the prediction of what will happen. It's something entirely different for the Holy Spirit to say, Paul, I prohibit you from going to Jerusalem. And I think the believers hear the prophetic words from the Holy Spirit and perhaps take it too far and say, well, Paul, this means that you're not supposed to go when the Holy Spirit has not directly told Paul not to go. Just like the believers in Tyre, I think they knew the message from the Holy Spirit and they didn't want Paul to enter into, into such a life-threatening situation. What is Paul's response? Believers are urging him, trying to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. They know what will happen to them there. They love him. They are concerned for him. But what does Paul say? I must go. They're weeping for him. They're pleading with him. They're begging him. And, it's, and he says, you're breaking my heart to pieces because of what you're saying. But my, my life is so rigid, I must go. This is not a decision that has been made lightly. He says this, I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Right here, here it is. He knew what really mattered. He knew that he had to go to Jerusalem for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. He knew he had to go to Jerusalem for the sake of the gospel. And so he disciplined himself because he loved the gospel, because he wanted the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to continue to be proclaimed in Jerusalem, that he was inflexible to the urging and the pleading of the believers. He saw that the gospel was at stake. The gospel that is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. The gospel that proclaims the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel that proclaims the name and only name that must be called upon if anyone is to be saved. The gospel that proclaims the name that is to be extolled and praised. The gospel that proclaims the name that he is willing to risk his life for. And so he disciplined himself to give up his own comfort. He disciplined himself to meet resistance. He, discipli he disciplined himself to move forward even when confronted with people who might try to stop him from spreading the truth of Jesus Christ. Even with demanding circumstances on his horizon, he didn't try to find an easier way out. Here's a question for us. To what extent are we willing to discipline our lives because of the gospel? To what extent are we willing to discipline our lives because we know that it is the only message that is to be believed so that people can have new life? To what extent are you willing to discipline yourself so that dead, lost, hopeless sinners can be raised from the dead to know the inexpressible joy of following Jesus Christ? To what extent did Paul do this? I am ready to be imprisoned. I am ready to die for the Lord Jesus Christ. What matters most is that people put their faith and trust in this Savior who can alone save them. That is what matters most. And when you know that's what matters most, you give yourself to Him and live for Him. What matters is that people know and believe in the gospel and are rescued from the flames of the lake of fire. Listen to how Paul and then how Moses thought about their own lives. First Paul, Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Why? Why would you consider everything that you gained in life loss for the sake of Christ? Or Hebrews eleven twenty six, 26, talking about Moses. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth 
than the treasures of Egypt. Would you go into a situation like that where you might experience reproach for the name of Christ and say, praise God, what a treasure, what a reward. That's what happens when you discipline yourself. They had, they had disciplined themselves to, and they were ready to face whatever comes their way. This is the mind behind so many missionaries who have gone out. Let's take just one example for a moment. A man named Adoniram Judson, a Baptist missionary, who had a heart that loved the gospel, wanted to take the gospel to this closed country of Burma. Today, we know it as Mamyar. Going against the pleas of many who told him not to go, he took his wife and he went. And there he labored for 38 years, suffered through cholera, malaria, dysentery, the death of his first wife, the death of his second wife, the death of seven of his 13 children, along with the lives of other colleagues that were working with him. And what was the result? Did Adoniram know what really mattered? And did he live it out? Today, there are 4,000 congregations in Burma with over half a million Christians in a predominantly Buddhist country. All the fruit stemming from Judson's resolve to discipline himself because he loved the gospel. It was a gospel issue. He had to go. How about for us? Are we willing to discipline ourselves because we love the gospel even when we don't faith in prison, face imprisonment and when we don't face death? Do we see that sacrifice is still needed in our lives to take the gospel, to take the name of Jesus with us into the community and see the Lord use it to save many of those who are his, who are all around us? We just have to go there and say, I'm disciplining myself to do this. It's going to be uncomfortable. I might meet resistance. I don't know what they're going to say, but it doesn't matter because the gospel matters. What kind of resolve do you have to have in your life to do that? You have to see that that is more important than even your own life. Number two, we must discipline ourselves because we love others. We must discipline ourselves because we love others. Paul arrives at his destination in Jerusalem. The church, it says, receives them gladly. They go into the elders of the church and here he meets with the elders and with James. James appears to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. James is the half-brother of Jesus. We've already seen him in Acts chapter 15 with the Jerusalem council. And the first thing Paul does is he gives a report. He gives a report in detail of his ministry. And, and listen to what Paul says. As he tells them about his ministry, he says, he was telling them about the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. This was God at work among the Gentiles. This was God saving Gentiles. These are the things that God was doing. Paul could not take any credit for them. He was merely serving in it, but it was through his service that God was actively working in people's hearts and minds to draw them to himself. That is how you tell other people about ministry. Let me tell you what God has done. Let me tell you how God has worked. We cannot relay the ministries of any detail. We cannot relay the details of any ministry any other way. We cannot make service all about what we have done. No, we point people to what God has done and what God is doing. Because then the greatest thing happens. People hear it. And all they can do is glorify God. We're not able to glorify man or some progress that we have made, some remarkable idea that we have had, something that we've done. It's all of God. He receives all the glory as He alone should. God was working through the ministry of Paul. And God was right to be glorified as He saved Gentiles. 
But there also was a problem in the Jerusalem church. You see that there. Many thousands of Jews who had believed, they'd put their faith in Jesus Christ. Some still held on to their Jewish customs. And there was this rumor spreading around that Paul was teaching that Jews who lived in Gentile areas, so Jews who didn't live in Israel, but Jews who lived in those places where Paul was ministering, that Paul was teaching them not to circumcise their children or not to walk according to their customs. The problem was this rumor was not true. Paul was teaching that these things do not save. But he was not teaching that means that Jews had to abandon them altogether. In fact, Paul had taken Timothy, whose father was a Gentile, whose mother was a Jew, and had him circumcised so that he could minister to the Jewish people living in the Gentile areas. With this false information that's being spread about Paul, the elders asked this question, what is to be done? And there is fear that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem will hear that Paul is there. It will cause a disruption and disunity in the church. So the elders tell Paul to go with these four other men who are under a vow. Most likely this is the Nazarite vow that Paul himself had taken recently that we saw earlier. And he is to purify himself along with them. So while these four men are under what appears to be the Nazarite vow, it looks like that Paul is entering this purification process because he's coming from a Gentile region. If you were a Jew and you had spent time in a Gentile region, you would come back and you would have to purify yourself after that. So that appears what Paul is doing here. He's to pay for their expenses And doing this, all to demonstrate that he remained faithful to his Jewish heritage. They do make it clear, however, notice, that it is not required of Gentiles to participate in Jewish customs in order to be a Christian. They reiterate what they require of Gentile Christians. And those requirements you see there revolve around maintaining unity between Jew and Gentile and staying sexually moral. So after hearing from the elders in the Jerusalem church, what does Paul do? He doesn't resist the leadership. He takes the practical advice they give him. He goes through the purification process. He doesn't go about and preach, does he? He doesn't go out and say, okay, they have this wrong information. What I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to go clear my name. Rather, he submitted to the uh, the, the Jerusalem leadership And if we could boil this down for one moment and understand what the Jerusalem elders are saying to Paul, I think they are basically saying this. Paul, ease the conscience of your Jewish brothers and sisters. Paul, do something that you are not required to do for the sake of your fellow believers and for the sake of the unity of the church. Did Paul have to do this? Was it required of him? No. But he willingly did it. He disciplines himself, saying, even though I don't have to do this, even though this is not a requirement of Christ, even though in the end I know this doesn't mean anything or add to my salvation in any way, in any way make me a better Christian, I will still go through with it for the sake of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul had disciplined himself because he loved others. And he knew that their hearts mattered. He knew their souls mattered. He knew that their consciences mattered. And he did not want to let anything get in the way or cause them to stumble. He did not want his life to hinder their growth in Christ or their unity in Christ. And so Paul loved the body of Christ so much that he would do something not required of him so that he could ease and soothe the consciences of those in the church. Notice that Paul doesn't throw his Christian liberty around. He did not say, well, I can do whatever I want with my Christian freedom and nobody is going to make me do what I don't want to do or make me not do what I want to do. Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 19. First Corinthians 9, beginning of 19. 
For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews, that those under the law, uh, to those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. You hear there the flexibility in, in Paul's life. I've become all things to all people. Why? So that I don't put any stumbling block in front of them from growing in Christ or from hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul had learned something. Christian liberty is the domain of the mature Christian, not the immature Christian. Let me say that again. Christian liberty is the domain of the mature Christian, not the immature Christian. Listen to this quote from a couple gentlemen named Andy Nassali and J.D. Crowley. They say this in their book called Conscience. Christian liberty is not about you and your freedom to do what you want. It's all about the freedom to discipline yourself to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of weaker believers. That's what Christian liberty is all about. Being free to discipline yourself to put the gospel and others first. Is that how you view your Christian liberty? Your freedom in Christ. I am so free and I am at such liberty that my desire is to put the gospel of Jesus Christ and others first in my life. That is what the mature Christian does. This is how the Christian lives who knows what really matters. Don't wrongly think that Christian liberty means no one can tell me what to do as long as it isn't sin. It means that I willingly give up things. I willingly say no to things, deny things in my own life because I love you and want to encourage you in your walk with Christ. It means that I will do things that I don't have to do. It means that I, will, that I won't do things that I could do, but that I will sacrifice everything for you because I love you and I want to see the gospel advance in your life. Have you disciplined yourself, my dear brother and sister, to be flexible for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of others? Notice how at first there was such rigidity in Paul. Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Please don't go to Jerusalem. But Paul loved the gospel and the name of the Lord Jesus so much that he said, no, I must go for the sake of the gospel. Sometimes that's what we must do when the gospel is on the line. We must do it so the gospel continues to advance, continues to grow, continues to work, continues to spread in the lives of people around the world. But Paul also showed, at times, this flexibility. Paul could do what the leaders of the Jerusalem church asked him to do because he loved his brothers and sisters in Christ. He was, again, doing it for the sake of the gospel, but I don't think he was compromising the gospel because if he was, he wouldn't have been doing it. He could do it with a clean conscience. Because he was helping those who were walking with Christ. He said, this thing will not detract from the gospel. On the contrary, it might help encourage people and might even win some people to the gospel. Am I willing to discipline myself in these ways for others? Do we think of the fact that motivated by the work of God, that He has done in us, that we would want to discipline ourselves, not just for our own spiritual growth, but that disciplining ourselves actually has a unifying and harmonizing effect on the church, and that we're also disciplining ourselves so that many might be one to Christ in order that He would receive all of the glory that is due to His name? Are you willing to discipline yourself because you know what really matters. Let's pray.
Lord, we ask that you would take your truth, that you would plant it deep in us this morning. Lord, if there's anyone here who's, who's heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he is the one who alone can save, he is the one who really matters, that it was his life and his death and his resurrection that brings salvation to us. Lord, if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know that salvation, that you would work in their hearts. You would reveal to them that they would even say, I thought I knew what really mattered in life. I thought I knew what I was living for. But it keeps coming up short. That today they would put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. That today they would begin living for what really matters. And for us as Christians today, that we would say, how great a salvation we have. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? I'm willing to discipline myself. I'm willing to face difficulty. I'm willing to be uncomfortable. I'm even willing to do things that aren't required of me or not do things that aren't required of me for the sake of my fellow Christians. Lord, show us those areas in our lives where we might need to grow and so honor you in all things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.